I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance, a podcast about romance novels, about getting railed, about the third rail, about millennial friends reboot fan fiction, about the big apple, about the Julianning of our understanding of place. About true crime fascination and how we have to shoehorn it into everything now. <laughs> uh, but most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And, and ourselves. That was great. Thanks. If we sound a little funny, uh, it's because not only are we not in the same room, Isabeau's not even in the same state. I'm not. I'm in Big Sky Country visiting my sister in Montana. It still takes some time to talk about One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. McQuiston. Sometimes love stops you in your tracks. Do it. Do you want me to read the back or do you want to read the back? You can read the back. I don't have it pulled up. You seem ready to go. You seem ready to rock. I'm ready. Bright eyed and bushy tailed. I've been awake for quite some time. I, I I need this espresso to hit my bloodstream before I can read the back of a book. Got you. All right. Dreamy, otherworldly, smart, swoony, thoughtful, hilarious, all in all, exactly what you'd expect from Casey McQuinston, blurb by Jasmine Gilroy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot of money in this motherfucker, huh? Goodness gracious. It's been a while since we've come to the... A mainstream side of things, I feel. It has been since we've come to the altar of romance capital. So here we are. But here, but then it's like, oh my God, Jasmine Gilroy, okay. <laughs> and Helen Hong is on this one, too. Oh, no shit. Yeah, I'll read that blurb at the end. For cynical 23-year-old August, moving to New York City is supposed to prove her right, that things like magic and cinematic love stories don't exist. And the only smart way to go through life is alone. She can't imagine how waiting tables at a 24-hour pancake diner and moving in with too many weird roommates could possibly change that. And there's certainly no chance of the subway commute being anything more than a daily trudge through boredom and electrical failures. But then... There's this gorgeous girl on the train, Jane. Dazzling, charming, mysterious, impossible Jane. Jane with her rough edges and swoopy hair and soft smile, showing up in a leather jacket to save August's morning when she needs it most. August's subway crush becomes the best part of her day, but pretty soon she discovers there's one big problem. Jane doesn't just look like an old-school punk rocker. She's literally displaced in time from the 70s, and August is going to have to use everything she tried to leave in her (laughs) own past to help Jane. Maybe it's time to start believing in something things after all. Casey McQuiston's One Last Stop is a magical, sexy, big-hearted romance where the impossible becomes possible as August does everything in her power to save the girl lost in time. I believe there's supposed to be a Helen Hong uh, blurb at the end there. Oh. A breathtaking love story filled with heart, yearning, coming of age, and the most wonderful found family. Honest, often humorous, always relevant. McQuiston's writing reads like poetry. One last stop is meant to be savored slowly. I think that's actually a really good blurb. It's a beautiful blurb. Uh, I don't like the prescription because I read it very quickly and didn't savor it, but... I took my I did take my time with it, which is why we're recording while you're in Montana. I did I do. I read every single word of these books. 
for the record. I don't I don't skim. I do forget though cuz it is a lot of information to take on. But yeah, I think like it is a book that you should take your time with. It's structurally it's a little well, I, I mean, you know, let's just get right into it. Our main I character. Have, I'm sorry. I feel like we should. That's not what I meant when I said let's get into it. <laughs> okay. I was revving up to something. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> shot an arrow through my sail. Our main character. I'm sorry. I just wanted to give people some footholds in our discussion. Uh, well, my first foothold is just about me. My name is Morgan. I am a co-host of a romance novel podcast, and I have not read Red, White, and royal blue Mm -hmm. okay do you want me to go into why that might be relevant for some of our listeners who don't know about the kerfuffle of red white and blue (laughs) no did you read red white and royal blue i did yeah i feel like i feel like it's relevant because i think everyone read red white and royal blue and and thus the people who come to one last stop come to it with a lot of specific like expectations that I do not share so I just wanted to provide that background as you like while I'm talking about the book like I don't have the full context of red white and royal blue okay red white and royal blue was a rom-com about uh young son of a woman American president and the uh, the prince of England, who is, I think, an amalgamation of Harry and William. It's a cool concept. I guess I just wasn't that interested in reading about, like, two imperialists making love. <laughs> Fair. Super fair. I mean, the reason if if this if this book sounds of interest to you, the thing that I think recommends it is the snappy dialogue and the text between the two at late at night across the ocean. People love it. I love snappy dialogue. That's one of banter is one of my favorite things in romance. I really liked that book, but I don't recommend it very often because I also think there are much better books. All right. But but is it fair to say like you spend time on the Twitters and I feel like that gives you you will, in addition to the fact that you've been reading romance since you're 13, the fact that you're our Twitter person will forever keep you in the position of romance authority between the two of us. And and so I feel in my like casual wanderings on TikTok and on Instagram that this book was like a real darling and it was her debut novel, correct? It was, it was certainly her debut. Whether or not it's a darling is really hard for me to say because as we've talked about on this podcast and other podcasts that we've been on, she got money behind her. And so like whether or not it was organic or if there was a real media push, I don't remember because I didn't come to that book until it'd been out for at least six months. So th- there's a lot of money behind this because Red, White, and Blue did make a lot of money and it, it made a big splash, I will say that. Yeah, it absolutely did. And I think that's a really good point. She's kind of an industry plant. She wrote her debut novel. It got put in the book of the month club, which I think is like insane. And like as far as like exposure. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, was it really a darling or was it just like in front of everybody, you know, the beneficiary of being in front of everybody? Well, I do think that the majority of people who it got put in front of enjoyed it. And a lot of people in my life who don't identify as like romance novel readers really liked it. Yes. And so that's pretty cool uh, that it brought some people over. But the discourse I've heard around this book is kind of like the idea of a sophomore slump and that people are really disappointed that it's not like Red, White, and Royal Blue. Can you maybe tell me what some of the differences are? Is it anything stand out to you? 
I mean, between the two, I liked this one better. The snappy dialogue doesn't happen between our two main characters. It happens with the found family of August. And so the the witty repartee isn't it isn't always flirtatious and it doesn't always serve the end of the romance. It serves the building of the romance that August has with New York City, the character. So that I think if you're not if you're not prepared for that, if you're not ready to be on that ride, that might be um, something that you don't like. I also get the sense that like people and this is a wild generalization that I feel free to make on this podcast <laughs> that I distribute for free. Um <laughs> You're not paying for it. I feel like people are more ready to like watch two hot dudes make eyes at each other than two hot ladies, one an out and out butch lesbian and the other a bisexual nerd. I I think people are just a little more uncomfortable with that. Also, the sex in this is much more public and from what I remember, much more graphic than Red, White and Royal Blue. I don't remember the sex in that being as graphically depicted. But that might be like the haziness of my own memory at this point. I was struck by the specificity of the sex in this book and not just like the sex acts, which aren't, you know, particularly like revolutionary. I wouldn't be like, whoa, it's so descriptive. It's like they're thinking her thinking through about sex is so specific. Mm -hmm. But I think with all of the uh, hype around red, white and royal blue that I've experienced, I was expecting it to be a lot zanier. And it's not a zany book. It's almost like navel gazy, which is kind of lovely. And I think kind of what makes it useful to like take your time reading. And I think romance as a genre tends to like have this like real propellant sense to the structure, you know, like everything's kind of surging towards that HEA. And this is not that. I think it's really interesting. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And I was kind of shocked by how much I I really liked reading this book because I was expecting to not like it because I have heard that very specific piece of criticism. There was a little moment on TikTok because a, a, a young lady said that she's not sexually attracted to women, so she wasn't sexually turned on by reading the sex scene in this book, which, I mean, she looks like she was about, like, I, I don't want to speculate about her age, but she looks like a really young person. It's like, you don't actually know your preferences yet, but good try. You find that, like, the genitals are the least interesting part of someone sexually <laughs> also. Yeah, and I think... That, especially for romance, and especially, like, we were talking about the zany stuff in Red, White, and Royal Blue, we're talking about extreme levels of privilege. So some of the fun things that happen in that book is, like, champagne towers that get knocked over. Yeah, I think you're making, like, a really key point, which is, like, these aren't not glamorous people. And they don't do... Like, they do interesting things in New York, and I think they do certainly participate in, like, an idealized version of what happens in a big in the big city. Our heroine, like, sleeps on an air mattress for the first part of the book and, like, has to split rent with all of these, like, kooky, wonderful people, but she has roommates nonetheless, which is, I mean, like, having roommates is only glamorous in sitcoms, and this is not that. And... She has to work in a in a pancake restaurant. There's certainly like a sheen to it, right? But at the end of the day, like you're right. This is like an impoverished young person falling in love with another impoverished young person 
on public transit. They're drinking hooch out of a bathtub, basically, at some point. They're drinking White Claws. I do think White Claw got a specific shout out. There are a lot of brand names that are mentioned in this book. And, like, a lot of pop culture is, like, constantly (laughs) a back drumbeat of this text. I want to talk a little bit more about The Roommates and New York uh, if you're down. I'm down. And I think that would be a, a, a better way to set up what happened in the story for our listeners who maybe haven't read the book and are curious what happens in the story in a way that doesn't like totally deflate my point that I just made. No, your, pl- your point was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to read this book the minute I read the concept. I heard the concept because I really love that idea and like I I tend I think I have a tipple and that's time travel romances and that I owe a lot of that to Joanna Lindsay writing that totally brilliant until forever but like I want and then everyone was like boo hiss (laughs) not funny or cool and I was like oh no and then I read it and I thought it was really nice so I I so it made me think like Red, White, and Royal Blue must be like the most perfect rom-com published in the last like 10 years. It's a very good rom-com. I don't know that it's... Anyway, we'll get into that. But I, I agree that... And also when I found out that she was trapped in the 70s, I was like, of course, Morgan. Um, <laughs> and 70s New York, uh, no less. And I was like, the check-in boxes for old Morgie-poo. <laughs> and I think what's really funny for me about this concept where we have August who's 23 and trying to finish college and she's like left her very emotionally hard mother in New Orleans who she's also very close to and so she's made this break to create this physical boundary so that she can work on creating better emotional boundaries with her mother and she sort of lands in this zany roommate situation and that was like my first notation was like oh you found the perfect roommate situation in a sweet apartment in Brooklyn like of course you did and of course they know the people who can get you the job at the pancake place like right off the bat Uh, they're a little we tripped along a little too quickly for me in the beginning it really did feel like a New York City movie like especially from like the 1960s where like everything's working out for you yeah and but there's just like enough enough hitch in that giddy up that I didn't like roll my eyes like their apartment is above a Popeye's yeah and like people who've lived in the building longer who we're going to meet later on know that you can use the freight elevator in the Popeyes in order to get upstairs without taking the stairs and like they have they play a game called Rolly Bangs because their floor is tilted because of how the building has settled which you can actually do in my apartment next time you come over we'll have uh, a great time with that and their shower doesn't get hot water which was definitely my experience of my first apartment in Chicago and it also made this awful screaming sound there are a lot of it takes 10 minutes to get warm right there are a lot of sensorial details for anybody who's lived paycheck to paycheck in an apartment situation in a big city <laughs> that should feel yeah. familiar but not bad it's like it does romanticize those aspects of the thing that were annoying when you lived them but I think are quaint in retrospect or in the telling of them, which is a weird narrative quirk that humans can do (laughs) to turn irritating situations into less irritating situations. Which is nice. As as someone who is currently living in the tilted floor, takes 10 minutes to get hot water situation, uh, it's still nice like to read about it because it, it is like, oh, t- <laughs> 
we get it. You and me, heroine of this novel. And so it didn't feel to me like it was like romanticizing something in the post. It felt more to me, and it, this kind of gets to like the navel gazy part of this book, where it's like romanticizing the existence itself. Like not like a nostalgia or anything like that. It's like this is this is it. This is the you're you're living like the fun, interesting life. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just so happens that also you have to wait 10 minutes to get a hot water. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the whole first beginning part, it felt like a sugar cookie to me. Like I didn't I didn't dislike it. I sought it out. I liked it. But we didn't get into what I would consider the meteor part of this book or what I actually wanted to sink my teeth into until we begin getting these weird interstitials and we meet Jane. And what I mean by weird interstitials, which I absolutely loved, is we got these like uh, missed connection posts from the internet and the early aughts and newspapers and like all sorts of stuff. So there's one at the chapter four that says cute girl on the Q train between Church Avenue and Kings Highway, Brooklyn. Hi, if you're reading this, we were both on the Q headed toward Manhattan. I was across from you. You were wearing, you were wearing a leather jacket and red high top converse, which is the calling card of Jane. And listening to something on your headphones, I was wearing a red skirt and reading a paperback copy of Sputnik Sweetheart last night, November 2nd, around 8.30 p.m. You smiled at me. I dropped my book and you laughed, but not in a mean way. I got off at King's Highway. Please, please read this. I can't stop thinking about you. And I loved that. What's the date on that since you have it pulled up? November 3rd, 2007. And this book takes place in our current moment. I think it's like they actually say 2020 at one point. And so the interstitials are giving us that Jane is caught in time right these like little pieces of like clippings this like little scrapbook there are everything from like craigslist misconnections to i think there's something that's supposed to be a tumblr post there's also like a police report uh definitely some newspaper reports it reminds me of ideology and what altuzair said about how our existence is like managed in like manila folders and this kind of also gets at something that's important about august which is that her mother has been investigating the disappearance of her brother august's uncle also named august since the 80s um, when she came of age and she's been kind of gumshoeing Mm -hmm. things in new orleans where august is from and looking for this person through the same kind of scrapbook clippings that we are introduced to like August's previous existence on the MTA and like even prior to that via this these interstitials. Absolutely. This is a book about collecting information and putting puzzles together. But like the ephemera is always physical, which is, I think, a pretty neat trick for a book that is written in the digital age and is uh, in large part about the digital age. There's so much, as you say, gumshoeing, but also just like moving into like city hall records and like getting the physical pieces of paper and like putting them on the page, which gives this book a sort of feeling of in and out of time which I thought was really appropriate. Yeah, a fascinating structural choice and very appropriate for what's happening. The idea, at like, and they are presented, like they're non-linear, they're non-chronological, I mean. Um, but they could be linear to August, um, our friend, uh, one of, or to Jane. So uh, one of the roommates, Myla, and Myla has a degree in electrical engineering, but works at an antique store. And sh- that's going to be important because electricity has everything to do with the tear in the space-time continuum that um, uh, Jane has fallen through. 
And she also is dating this guy named Nico. Nico, who is a psychic medium. Mm-hmm. So is able to determine that Jane is still like a living being. And Mila is the one who theorizes that Jane is unstuck in time, which is that like very Kurt Vonnegut, I think, way of thinking about time travel and the idea that it's not like you just go back or go forward but you kind of are pitched to and fro. And in Slaughterhouse-Five, like interdimensionally so, she uses the exact phrase unstuck in time, which is a ref- like a direct reference to Slaughterhouse-Five, even though there's like Vonnegut and it gets no shout outs in this novel. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I saw unstuck and I searched Vonnegut and yeah, it didn't. And then it also didn't pan out. And there's something about the way the interstitials, they're doing a lot of the work of making the time travel interesting. Yeah. Jane basically doesn't exist unless August is present on a Q train, which is a really boring way to live. And, you know, we get these slices, but, you know, she was hopping around in time on the train before August got there. But now that August is here, she only appears when August is on the train. And she, like, rides the train, like, because she's much more present. Like, there feels like there's less skipping around. And even when August gets off the train, Jane is trapped on the train. And so Jane's tragedy becomes more and more apparent over the novel. And the frenetic force to unstick Jane from this particular time moment becomes more and more important because it is a mercilessly boring existence riding the Q chain 24 hours a day. And she doesn't need to eat and she doesn't need to drink. So she just has all this time people watching and just like experiencing the train. And interacting with other human beings as we get from these interstitials. Right. But also just like sitting and the other thing about Um, meeting August and this like faded mates aspect of their romance is that because August makes Jane more corporeal Mm. and like fixes her in time to this particular train in this particular spot Jane is then forced to like become a corporeal time being and begins to recover her memories of her life. Because before August showed up, Jane didn't know who she was. She knew something weird was happening. She thought she'd maybe been on the train for like three months as opposed to like 40 some years. Yeah. And we know that she is like an active being when August isn't present because she's able to send these text messages. But I'm not actually that interested in like poking holes and how the time travel works because I mean like who does that? The people who like spend time complaining about the realism of like piece of like speculative fiction. I really like it's all it's all a big make em up. Come on. Yeah, totally. I'm not interested in poking holes. I just thought like one of the things that made this book richer for me is that the time travel aspect feels fun, unique and quirky at the beginning and then like the consequences of what is actually being described begin to hit the page and like manifest in their relationship yeah build weight yeah and I I loved that as a concept where it's like time travel is in romance is usually like a fun fish out of water version of the story and like there is a little bit of that here where it's like what's the breakfast club or like what's Wiffy, it's Wi-Fi. It's like that, like that's definitely here a little bit. But more importantly, it's it's this idea that being a fish out of water, being out of your own time, would be a 
scary experience, but also a tragic one because Jane has a ton of unresolved stuff with her family that she can now never resolve. I'm not interested in poking holes in like how time travel works. I am interested in poking holes in the interstitials themselves because, hi, internet historian Morgan here. There is a Craigslist misconnections post. It says posted on June 8th, 1999 in New York, Brooklyn. Craigslist didn't exist outside of San Francisco until the year 2000. Cool. Thank you for that. So uh, I wish that person all the best finding the love of their life in New York on a San Francisco only list serve. <laughs> but I just wanted that on the record. It's on the record now. I mean, do you want to talk about the other uh, pop cultural stuff or like the pre post Giuliani? Oh, my gosh. Well. New York landscape. Well, I think it's like a really interesting choice. And I want to talk about the relevance of it. Jane gets stuck, I think, in the year 1977. Oh, July 1977, which something significant happened in that time period. But 1977 was like, I think it was the summer of Sam. And like everything was super intense in New York City. It was. And our heroine, August, arrives on the scene as she's so she's never lived in non Giuliani New York world which Giuliani was like the mayor who was going to clean up the streets and he was going to make tourism a really uh, a thriving industry in New York City and he successfully did so he cleaned up Times Square cleaned up air quotes Times Square brought in like gentrification started happening in a really strong and really uh, intense way under his mayorship and I think it's really interesting that those two existences of New York are meeting but that's never interrogated the fact that like Jane's understanding of the city is so completely and totally different from anything that August has. But this idea of New York City as like central to their being together, right? Like you pointed out that you feel New York City is an important character in this text. But like the evolution of that character is never brought to the forefront. I have an idea about this. Hit me. I I think one of the central tensions of New York in this text is that August in 2020 is experiencing an idealized version of New York of 1977. The place that she works, Billy's Pancakes, opened in 1976. Jane worked there. Like her friends are living this like friends queer dream that also feels like relevant to a 1970s like gay liberation front New York uh, pre HIV AIDS yeah and so it feels very much like August is living the idealized romanticized version of what Jane would have actually been living in New York and the only threat that Giuliani's march through the boroughs manifests as is that Billy's is going to close because gentrification is happening. But like the idea of like cops harassing people and, you know, pushing the homeless into the trains or like beating them up or sending them away, like the real consequences of Giuliani's air quotes cleaning up of New York, like that humanness of those consequences is not explored at all in, in August's timeline, but comes up in ways in Jane's, I think. And so it's weird because you said there's like this pre-post 
Giuliani break for New York. And I think that's super true in real life. But for this book, it's almost like August and like the world that she lives in has cleaved out alternate non-Giuliani world. And like that's one of the things about this idealized version of New York that August lives in that feels like yeah. a deep connection to Jane. Like the New Yorks that they live in are not dissimilar in that way. Like the people that they meet, the the places that they walk, the kinds of coffees that they drink. That's a really good point. I, I remember, so they pick up on the fact that like Jane can start remembering stuff via sense memory. And so she's like, oh, I'm going to figure out your coffee bagel order. Every New Yorker has a coffee bagel order. And there was one that I was like, I genuinely don't think this would have existed. Toasted Parmesan. She brings her, um, over the next four days, August brings her a different coffee and bagel. Black and an everything with locks. Cappuccino with cinnamon and a toasted Parmesan with garlic herb. And I was like, I just can't imagine like being able to go to like anywhere in New York where there was a bagel and be like I would like a like a cappuccino with cinnamon okay but like a toasted parmesan with garlic bagel in 1977 I don't think that would have been an option <laughs> like you can narrow down your sense memory choices here the idea that there was a cleave is completely absent from this text even though there was it was super traumatic mm-hmm. and like Jane says stuff like I don't fuck with pigs and and things and so you do know like you get like ideas but I think you're right in the world of this novel Mm -hmm. there's just been like the same progression that you might have seen in like any small town in America right like there wasn't this force of personality that implemented stop and frisk policies and a data-driven way of policing that's ultimately racist and classist right that's not <laughs> that didn't happen here and it's it, it is interesting and I wonder if it's I don't know I mean you're like actually beginning to hit on my weirdest part of the novel <laughs> ah well it's never too early okay well if it's never too early so we have this punk lesbian rocker Jane trapped on the Q train and she says things like I don't fuck with pigs and it comes from a serious and important place of her existence cops hurt queer people in Jane's experience cops have hurt Jane in Jane's experience and there's this line that it's much later in the novel and um, August says well because she comes on the train and Jane has a bleeding lip and then she says oh I'll call the cops. We'll file a report. We'll get that guy reported. And then Jane says, I don't fuck with cops. And then she's like, of course, that's stupid. But I meant for like you because things have changed. And I was like, things have changed. That's true. This feels like the argument that was being had around having cops at New York Pride Parade. And it's like, but things haven't changed that much for enough queer folks for that comment to land unfiltered. Cops will be violent with anybody, too. Like, sure, absolutely. But especially, especially, you know, people of color, especially queer presenting, because people know Jane's a woman. Like, they can tell that she's a butch lesbian, and they regularly comment on it. Not to mention that she's Chinese-American, and so she has, like, two very visible marginalized identities that would make her a target. But... Like, nothing has changed with policing (laughs) since the 70s, especially in New York City. Right. And so for August to say something like that and for this book to truly believe that 
progress has been made and that like there is like there's a conversation here about what progress means and I think this book is really earnest in that belief and I think there are ways that that's true like even Jane says well you know gay people hold hands on the train now and it wasn't like that when I was riding the train in 1977 and I think that's all true but I don't know that I believe that progress is as ruthlessly linear as this book is would have me believe. Yeah, so I want to read the interaction and like where okay. it goes because I think it's because I think some people might push back on that point be like, "Oh no, like August is very accepting when Jane." And it's but it's like Jane's own reframing of the encounter and like her bad feeling about it is what I think is making is like points in that direction and makes me say like, "Yeah." So it says, I know it's it's fucked up, August tells her. She's thinking about the fire, the things that drove Jane from city to city. So the fire being gay bar where August's uncle actually worked was uh, burned uh, down to the ground as uh, a hate crime. That was never investigated. That was never investigated. And so that's why Jane left New Orleans. But I promise most people aren't like that anymore. If you could go out, you'd see. It's the wrong thing to say. She can tell before she's even done saying it. That's not what it's about. And Jane says, God, you don't, you don't get it. You can't. August says, try me. Okay, fine. It's like, I woke up one day and half the people I ever loved were dead. And the other half had lived a whole life without me. And I never got a chance to see it. It's like not pushing back on the idea that there was a progression. It's, put, it's like, hey, that's a really big bummer that you didn't get to be a part of that progression. Yeah. And I feel like if Jane's as radical as this book wants her to be, then I think Jane would have noticed just by virtue of being on an MTA on the Q train for the last 40 years, like not that much has changed. And I think the fact that Jane only thinks three months have gone by is actually like a really poignant statement about how little has changed. And yet like it kind of it gets like blurred and softened. I think that's exactly right. You make such a good point about that, like that that there is truly a time collapse because the progression that we're supposed to believe exists in this very linear way. Like the idea that it's only been three months mm-hmm. for Jane, regardless of her like being unstuck in time. I think you're right. It's You said it so beautifully. It is so poignant because that means that things cannot have progressed that far. Yeah. And, you know, you also point out that like it seems like August is living in the same like softened version of what Jane was living in before. And I think like there's lots of examples of that. Like Jane talks about how she used to go to drag shows, but those were super underground at the time. And like you had to be in the know about it. And now it's, you know, one of the most popular reality television competitions is this super... Like, drag has become mainstream enough that we can now be upset by, like, how not radical it is. And I think that's kind of, like, the rub. It's, like, August can't be that radical. And this text can't be that radical because it's kind of comfortable in the idea that, like, things have changed since the 70s and is satisfied with that. That's my that's my weirdest part of this book because I think... I- it's hard, right? Because I think even in my own lifetime, I can I can see progression. Yeah. But the idea that marriage equality, which was a very important fight and really good and all of that stuff. But then it's like, 
solved. You got monogamy. (laughs) And if you want, you can also have divorce. It's like, oh, but what about like apartment protections and work protections in 37 states and like actual gay liberation stuff? Do you know it's still it's still legal in 42 states to marry a child if their parents says it's okay? (laughs) Right. I'm like, we're just not as far as I think this book and many people in my own circle, myself included, often enough, want to believe that we are. Yeah. And reading that, like actually reading some like little heart earnest cries of myself written on this page, it was it became much easier for me to look at. Like this book functioned really well for me as a liberal mirror where I could be like, oh, I, I do. Those are thoughts that I have had. But wait, we're not quite there yet, babe. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so like I found this book both really electrifying, pun intended, <laughs> because it helped me see something in myself that I've been working on. And to see it in the text was really good. But like in it was my weirdest part because I'm like, it's not it's not this, though. Yeah. And like the New York that you're describing is like this Disney trans friendly version of this thing that I I'm not convinced exists enough for this to be Mm. to function the way that it's on the page. Yeah, like it's it's still really hard to survive in New York as a someone who like a a food server right like her rent is seven hundred dollars a month yeah and when she was missing like three weeks of shifts i was like yeah oh my god they're gonna fire you and then you're not gonna be able to pay rent and it's not like your 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 new queer family is gonna be able to make that up you guys are not living like that yeah she does have student loans so yes i guess that kind of can explain it but also she like keeps getting student loans that's the thing that kind of like terrifies me is that you can just keep getting them endlessly yeah can I talk I want to talk about my weirdest part because I think it might segue nicely into sexiest part as opposed to like the shoehorn that we normally do that's great I love it I love a segue okay what's your weirdest part Morgan my weirdest part is the rampant public sex (laughs) Ah. and so I was thinking about like what my hang-up is about public sex because I'm like Morgan it's in a it's in a book just enjoy it Just pretend like the other people on the train aren't there. So the first time our two main characters make a love, they're on, they're in an abandoned train car and the power goes out and they're actually stuck on a bridge. And so that also made me feel good because I was like, no one's going to see them through a window. Mm -hmm. It was a very well justified public transit love scene for me. I know. Also loved it. 10 out of 10. Gorgeous. The second time they are on a super crowded train and August makes this good point about how like sometimes a train can be so full of people that it makes it like there's no one there. And that's the situation they're in. They're sitting next to someone's like gigantic Ikea purchase. Mm -hmm. And so they feel anonymous. And I was like, okay, (laughs) here we go. And Jane starts, our heroine is sitting on Jane's lap. And she starts to, like, put her hand up her skirt. And here's the thing. You might feel, this is what, I finally got to the bottom of it. It's like, you might feel like you're the only two people on earth, but you're not. And you might think that no one can see you, but we can. And I don't have the context to know, like, if what's happening to you is appropriate or not. 
And I also don't have like the sense of personal safety to check in when I'm on public transit. I'm speaking as someone who has seen people rounding third on public transit before. It's uncomfortable. I I don't care for it. (laughs) And I know that I can look the other direction, but then I'm like, no, like someone's sitting across from them. What if they didn't bring a book, you know? And like they just have to avert their eyes. And this kind of comes up repeatedly, right? Because they're on public transit. Jane cannot leave the train, right? So if they're going to have sex, it's going to happen in public. And so this idea of like we're the only two people on earth, right, repeatedly comes up. And I found that the reason I hate it so much is that you're not the only two people on earth. And I'm not particularly interested in the idea that you're going to like romanticize that much individuation. Like, that your seeking out of, like, orgasm has to be done, like, is is more important than, like, considering the feelings and experiences of people around you. Because, frankly, like, you have no idea who's paying attention to you or not. And, like, you have no idea what seeing you have sex could do to someone else. And it just seems like I would rather read, like, a slow burn than (laughs) someone having, like... And it's a hundred. It's like not my tipple, okay? It, it's your tipple. I think a romance novel is a really safe place to explore any kind of kink or interest you might have. That's true. I think it's great. I'm just saying I have never understood my personal hang-up with it and why I was so icked out by it until I read it for the 800th time on this show. And I finally had a moment of, I think for me, it makes the heroines unlikable. Like, oh, wow, for all of your consideration of like the public good, you're actually not being very considerate at all. I think that's actually a really good point. And I think also part of the reason why it was probably easier for you to like plumb this depth in yourself is because Jane is trapped on the train. So once we start having sex, there are like a few fast and furious sex scenes on the train and they're like kind of on top of each other. And it is a lot because like the first one is great. The lights go out. It's very romantic. No one can get on the train. It's great. And then it's like people, crowded cars, not as crowded cars, which is worse. It's this we we too are alone, this sort of faded mates thing that comes through in these public sex scenes that does really just seem like uh, selfish. Yeah, and I think it's also the fact that our heroine, August, she keeps a record of the things that she discovers that Jane enjoys sexually. She starts a sex notebook. Sidebar, side quest, weirdest part, (laughs) August never considers what she likes and what she enjoys about what Jane is doing. At one point she says, like, I like everything you do because I like you. And it's like, well, (laughs) dangerous precedent to set (laughs) early in the relationship. But they enjoy stuff like blood play and choking and that's a whole other level of stuff to be doing in public a little like manual mutual masturbation is one thing but stuff that involves like bruising imagine you see that on a train it's it's just a little overwhelming and I also think like Another weirdest part side quest, but this is just like a sociocultural weirdest part for me. Being on TikTok, I see like all of these really young women who are like, I'm very into BDSM. I'm interested in blood play and choking. And I think like all of this stuff has gotten overexposed to the point where people think that like vanilla sex is not fun or interesting before they've ever had sex. 
And I'm like, hey, how about some like gentle lovemaking? How about that? I want sepia tones and soft music. Yeah. Can we have some like billowing chiffon curtains? Have you tried billowing chiffon curtains and candlelight? Like I really think like we need to normalize, re-normalize like lovemaking and vanilla sex because I think people should have the opportunity to try it before they're like getting choked and like, I like this. Like, do you? I don't know if you're sure that you do. Or did you just say to the hot girl that you want to impress, I like everything you do to me. Yeah, that you like being (laughs) choked. Yeah, have you tried it without? Have you just tried, like, regular breathing? (laughs) And, like, no no shame to people who have, like, you know experienced many different kinds of sex and this is the one of the the paints that they pull out of their palette whenever they're uh making romance but i just feel like the overexposure of it is putting people in a position where they're like they're getting like nipple clamps before they've had like their boob touched and i'm not trying to say like there's a telios of sexuality but it's like can we talk about like can we give the other stuff a shot is the assumption that everyone is giving the other stuff a shot I don't think they are. <laughs> I think you actually, this is all very funny. And I, I think you do raise a good point because August is a virgin. Yeah. And we jump immediately to public sex, A, because that's how the the structure of the novel works. But there isn't, and they're like kissing on the train, but there isn't a conversation about anything else. It's like, I'm a virgin. And then Jane's like, oh, I'm okay with that. Not that you're a virgin and like that's not okay because like whatever virginity is a construct like throw away 2020 line but I'm okay like you just have to tell me what you like but then August says this I like whatever you do to me and it's like that's not actually a conversation that you should have with someone who's like uninitiated you need to have more there needs there needs to be more words there and I think you you raise a good point about like the overexposure of and sexualization of bodies especially in social media like has and and violence specifically and violence specifically and has changed the operating conversation in a way that like (laughs) maybe we should rethink like (laughs) yeah I just want to say like beep beep (laughs) yeah no I think that's good and like that was one of the things in this book where I was like I didn't expect August to be a virgin and I liked that it was it wasn't a nothing burger but it also wasn't a something burger yeah to come out of your second time having third time having sex with a person and it's in public on a train and you make the note my partner likes to leave marks on my body <laughs> even assuming that you're having like the really in-depth conversation consistently consistently of like does this feel good harder or softer is it okay if I try this? What do you think about this? I'm interested in this. And you're having it next to people on a train. Like somebody's grandmother and somebody else's sister with her six kids. You know what I mean? There's a moment in the Womance podcast where we're like deeply thinking and there's a pause and then you just hear the person next to you be like, choke me, daddy. What? Pardon me. No. <laughs> and I just think there's an overexposure of this like, we need to... <laughs> I, I would like to see a more, a, a greater overexposure of like vanilla sex. Vanilla is delicious. It's true. It's super good. And no one says, people are using vanilla disparagingly. And I don't think that's how it was meant. I agree. And I think, you know, there's a time and place for everything. You know, it's like vanilla isn't every day. 
and it doesn't have to be. But, like, maybe investigate it a little bit. Yeah. And, by the way, they could have had – there is a very specific conversation in the book about when the train is naturally deserted. Mm -hmm. That's when they can have sex as well. If they want to have private conversations, they can also have their private lovemaking time. It's 3.30 a.m. on Tuesdays. Yeah. And wouldn't that be delicious, you know? (laughs) just anticipating 3 30 a.m on a tuesday like that would be nice that would have been a fun thing to explore that was my weirdest part but i so your sexiest part my sexiest part naturally is the first time they have sex in a bed Mm -hmm. is that my sexiest part i don't know is it no my sexiest part is the conversation leading up to the first time they have sex because Mm-hmm. It is that, like, you have a crush on me, too, kind of conversation that's actually, like, you are incredibly desirable. I think at one point, Jane tells August, you look like a painting, and you just walk around like that all day. I was like, oh, my God, that's so good. Like, the book may not have, like, the same, like, sizzling dialogue as the repartee of Red, White, and Royal Blue, but I think it's hard to beat the, like, sexy talk in this book. Highly, highly agree. Like, I just... <sighs> Yeah. Um, And so that was my favorite part. And, like, there's a moment where she's, like, wearing thigh-high socks. And she's like, is it too much? And Jane, like, puts her finger – it it describes the sensation of feeling, like, a fingernail scrape into your – the top of your thigh-high. Like, it's very good at finding those, like, little moments. It's not all about, like, passionate, windswept kisses. And it's not about wet, hot thumping. The love scenes in the book are really focused on, like, the minutiae sensations. Even that scene that I'm thinking about where she's sitting on her lap, she talks about the feeling of Jane eventually like scraping her fingernail on her panties and like the feeling of that texture. It was like electrifying. Like I think (laughs) we keep doing it. I mean, this book I think is a very sexy book, even though I have an ideological (laughs) beef with public sex. This book is sexy. Like I... Under my notes where it's like sexiest part question mark and I go all of it (laughs) because of course like not only is Morgan uh, describing (laughs) exactly the kind of sparks that the details of this book get into the fingernail on the thigh high but at one point uh, August goes onto the train wearing fishnets and she comes out and you know two of the fishnets are like ripped and she stumbles home in a like sex induced haze and there's just so much here yeah it's a romance novel it has an HEA Jane gets unstuck (laughs) from time in the year 2020 exactly and so they get to have sex in a bed and that scene is so hot because it's just like touching thighs and hips and like it's it's not graphic but it's detailed yeah it's not graphic it's detailed and they start off in the shower and they're like you know can't stop touching each other and I also think there's something really romantic go figure after my last rant about someone being like I want to I want to have sex with you in a bed in private (laughs) the first time we have sex I don't want it to be in the shared bathroom in the shared bathroom with all of the roommates but of course and I think like this book was also a return to form for me because there's this line that like I reread like 11 times because I loved it so much so the psychic Nico keeps telling um August that she has to tell Jane how she feels truly because Jane uh August is really conflicted because she wants to unstuck Jane 
But she's worried that she'll unstuck her to the 70s and then she'll never see her again. And she doesn't want to say, I love you, because I love you then feels like a burden and a curse at that point because they can't do anything about it if she gets sent back to the 70s. So, like, why would you do that to Jane? But then Nico's like, you're really protecting you, not Jane. You should just tell her. So then in this moment when they're trying to, like, send her back, she finally works up the courage and she says, I'm an absolute fuck off life ruining love with you. And I can't. I can't do this and not tell you. Maybe you already know. Maybe it's obvious and saying it is just going to make this harder. But God, I love you. I fell in love with you the day I met you. And then I fell in love with the person you remembered you are. I got to fall in love with you twice. That's magic. You're the first thing I believed in since I don't even remember. And I'm just like dead. Classic me. I was like, this proclamation of love is far too verbose. And Isabel's like, I could have used three more sentences. And this book did that to me. I was like, I'm in like life ending love with you. And I was like, perfect. End it there. I'm in life ruining love with you. That's perfect. It's so good. Yeah. I literally thought I was like, oh God, it keeps going. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, say more. (laughs) It is a true return to form. Oh God, it is. And like other thing that I truly, truly loved about this book, because I did feel like this book was talking to me specifically, which doesn't happen to me very often in romance anymore. But August is painfully and earnestly in love with the movie Say Anything. And I too, and for much too many years of my life carried around a Lloyd Dobler poster that I put up in every room that I could at any time I had a personal space. Lloyd Dobler was above my bed. And I have this very visceral connection to this film. And so the fact that August is like constantly referring to it like a touchstone or a lodestone and like you're Lloyd Dobler in love with Diane Court. I was like, is it for me? Um, I loved that. I loved that. The book also has pop culture wise like a a really good playlist. I'm sure it exists in real life on Spotify somewhere. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a really lovely playlist. Um, and it, it like the playlist is a great example of how you can be nostalgic about the past without romanticizing it. And I think that's what makes the like time travel aspect of this novel. First of all, it's a really interesting concept of being like in stasis rather than like going backwards or forwards in time to be like, because like she says she's unstuck, but really she's in stasis. Um, She's trapped in amber. And the idea of like having what is in a way a time travel romance that is queer. Right. And features um, a heroine of color as well. It, It is really conceptually interesting. And I think this idea of stasis in the present but bridging to the past allows for like more interesting and nuanced conversations rather than Vikings are super fucking hot and I guess I'll suffer through being ravaged in his time, right? Because I've been put back and I'm like at a clear disadvantage as the her- uh, as the heroine. Like no one's really at that much of a disadvantage in this book. Like there is like a real egalitarian with the time travel and there's like a real egalitarian sense even though we have these marginalized identities present as our central characters. And I think that's just way to stick the landing on that one, McQuiston. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Speaking of return to form, I have a quick question for you. Oh, God. Okay. The, is this a romance novel romance novel? 
Like, I know it's a romance novel. It kind of has all the, like, it has the happily ever after. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the heroine's relationship is that central to the text. You know, Helen Hong pointed out in her blurb, like, it's a book that you read slowly, which is, you know, mm-hmm. not something that's super common in, in romance. And I actually, I don't think it's like a specific genre keystone or anything. But it's definitely atypical to have a romance novel that's lingering and navel-gazy and introspective. And it feels more like Jane Eyre than The Hating Game. If this book had a different cover, like um, The Pisces, right? If this book had a cover mm-hmm. like The Pisces, and if it had gotten a hardback release, I would have read this as literary fiction. Because the romance, as interesting and as motivating as it is, mm. this book is really about August coming of age, finding herself, and finding her family. Like, this book doesn't even need Jane. This book could have been about finding roommates and going to school and learning to build healthy boundaries with your overactive mother who loves you unconditionally but makes bad choices there's so many sorry there's so many I just want to point out there's so many beautiful like side pieces to this story like discovering what happened to her uncle the way the uncle storyline finishes is I cried when I read it I did too And that's part of the reason why I would say, like, for a romance novel, it it feels Mm -hmm. much more like literary fiction because we didn't get an HEA. I was expecting, once I realized that Jane's story intertwined with the uncle's, and this isn't to give anything away, I did expect an HEA in both versions. And the fact that, like, we only got one rather than both and that this isn't tied with as need a bow as like it could have been I think also creates that bend in the curve around romance like it has all the romance points it even has all the things in romance that I love like it's getting a team together the team is your friends and they like have funny food discussions and they invent games and they want to help you but they also tell you truths that you're like hiding your feelings and she even says this really funny thing where she's like I'm repressing my feelings and Nico's like I know that you think you're doing that and she's like let me repress them and it's like this book is very conversational in that way but no like this book didn't even need Jane right like this book could have literally just been about August and her funny friends in New York trying to save Billy Pancake's palace or whatever Billy Pancake's house of pancakes that's right thank you I do think Jane's storyline is really interesting. It's fabulous. I love it. Yeah. Like, I I don't think the book would be as strong without it. I think it could exist. Like, there is a story that exists without the romance in the book. But I also agree. Like, I expected after reading all of it, I was kind of shocked by how they choose to wrap up the HEA. Because I was expecting something much more, uh, I mean, like, it is a time travel romance, but something much more unorthodox. And like an even bigger swerve and there is that swerve in the like uncle's story but like this book understands it's the text understands itself as a romance novel I wonder what this story would have been if it didn't come to the table with that first in mind it feels like there's something else kind of flowering here and I can't I'm not prepared to like say what it is or like how it would be reformed 
But I just say that there's like a sense of like literary, like you say literary, you could have taken it for literary fiction. Like there's a sense of something like a little bit more transgressive kind of blooming here that never fully blossoms. I think we are watching someone who's very skilled and will only continue to grow as a writer using the structure of romance to dismantle something and I'm excited to see where this writer goes in future because I think they are skilled and I think they are using the the familiars of the tropes really really well like I think Courtney Milan does this really well I think as we talked about with Shelf Love Alyssa Cole does this really well like there is somebody who is intimately familiar with the genre tropes who sees how they can be stretched, maneuvered, and snuck out of place a little bit to open up like a skylight. And this book is doing something that feels expansive. Like, I feel like this is somebody who's like doing something cool with a genre that I love. I feel like there was room for a really melancholy HEA. Yes. And I think it's telling that the melancholy HEA was not the one that was selected for final publication. You know what I mean? Yes. And it feels like a little, uh, uh, uh. (laughs) it feels a little bit like getting unstuck in time reading the ending that was chosen for me personally. But it is, it is like the happiest of the ever afters we could have expected. I agree. And in some ways, I mean, it did, it, it reminded me of Until Forever with like that knock, knock on the door when you've like, you know, finally come to peace with a different version of that. And so. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, do not put Until Forever in your mouth. This is such a good book. If you haven't read Until Forever by Johanna Lindsay, you need to like stop sleeping on that. Yeah. All right. Womance or nomance? Womance, unapologetically, unabashedly yeah. forever. Womance, absolutely. And I would take all of Helen Hong's advice though. I would read it slowly and I would, you know, like give it some real space. And I would also, like, I loved this book and uh, Isabel really loved this book clearly. And we both came to it with different previous experiences with this author, me having like zero expectations and Isabeau having low expectations. And uh, we're really pleasantly surprised. And I I don't think authors should always be beholden to, I know we're on a fucking podcast about genre fiction. So I'm about to be like, I don't think you should expect authors to always deliver the same thing that they delivered last time. But I think like, you know, if you're going to like a single title situation, like kind of give give them the grace to be multitudinous let them get soupy let it get humid and I think like that stands for the old books that we love but also for this new moment in romance I think that's one of the things that you and I really discovered in category or like other places where it's like we wanted this to like really flex its muscles and I think this is a book that's doing that yeah, this book is a dip in its toe for sure. Romance for me as well. Any parting thoughts? Uh, listen to the Spotify playlist. I think you will like it. Oh, yeah. We, we're not sure if it exists. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Uh, it's I'm like all the songs in this are great. So like if you want to have like a multimedia experience, would recommend. Cannot vouch for the rest of the pop culture references in this. There's like a certain like lameness to all every time someone tries to be relevant, it always comes up like a little bit lame. But the old the, the old, old references are great. Yeah, the old references are great. All right. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. 
Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.